0: You're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK & Associates and your host, Mike King.
1: It's festive season, and if you thought one Lodestar Hack per episode was more than enough, well, it's your Christmas nightmare, because today there are four of us It's the Lodestar's very own Christmas Carol, as we look at the best and worst of logistic past. We give our takeaways on Covid present and we glance ahead at a hopefully pandemic-free, well, probably recession-hit future. We're picking through the biggest stories of 2022 and picking out the winners and losers of those oh-so-disrupted 12 months. And that's not all, because just for you, we're going to do our damnedest to identify the biggest opportunities and risks in 2023. I'm joined today by the Low Stars, Alex Lunane, Gavin
0: Van Marl and Mr. Mike Wackett. Looking at the global picture, it's really if the world or most of the world can come out of this recession relatively quickly and... If we can, and we know we've seen this before after the financial crisis, that there's a pent-up demand that really gives everybody a boost and rates will go up and everybody will have uh, a smile on their faces again. So it's really a question of how deep and how long this recession is. But we do know that recessions do end as they do start. So at some stage, there will be that uptick.
1: Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Just before we start, a quick reminder, you can find all episodes of this podcast on all the usual platforms and on thelodestar.com. So how different the world is now compared to a year ago? As trailed on this episode, we'll be examining that transformation as we look back at the big stories and trends of 2022 and we'll hear some bold and brassy predictions for 2023. Is the outlook really as recession hit and downright downheartening as many of the economic forecasts suggest? What are the risks and opportunities in the year ahead? All will be revealed. But first, with no more dallying, let me introduce my three guests today. First up, is a giant of our industry, a man who knows his way round box ships, like I know my way round the Isles of Little. Welcome, Mr. Mike Wackett. My pleasure, Mike. Next up is Alex Lenane, Lodestar publisher, who is not looking quite her usual happy self today. Did you not get a Christmas card from my author this year, Alex?
2: No, I'm, I'm still waiting. I have no doubt there's one in the post though.
1: Well, fingers crossed. And finally, last but not least, We have Lodestar Managing Editor, who's been writing up a storm all year. Hello, Gavin Van Maal. Hello, Mike. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Gav, uh, my New Year's wish list, it's topped by the earnest hope that a game, which I think somebody, with not the best taste, called Freight Word Association. I'm hoping it never sees the light of day. (laughs) What's on your wish list, Gav? (laughs) Some warmth. A bit, a bit of warm. Uh, the freight temperatures above zero. Unfrozen frozen pipes. <laughs> okay, let's get on with things. We are going to talk today about the biggest freight shipping and logistics risks a bit later, as well as looking at the prime opportunities out there in 2023. But first, 2022, which I think if it taught us anything, it was to expect the unexpected. It was a year that shocked us with the war in Ukraine, endless Chinese COVID lockdowns. Soaring inflation, the devastation of tighter fiscal and monetary policies, extreme weather that affected supply chains from India to the Mississippi, Australia to the Rhine. We've had the collapse of freight rates. But on the other side of the ledger, in most parts of the world, we're seeing the spring shoots of a post-COVID world with all the freedoms that entails. It's been quite a mad year, I would say. I think we should probably start on the dreadful invasion of Ukraine though, which has reverberated across energy and food markets. It's also one of the big drivers of this inflation that we're seeing. Sanctions have also complicated all sorts of trade. And of course, most importantly, it's been a a horrible, horrible humanitarian disaster for Ukraine that simply didn't need to happen. Uh, Here's looking at you, Putin. But Alex, more prosaically, we also saw the demise of one of the truly iconic airlines due to this war, didn't we?
2: Yes, Mike, we did. I've got a real love for freighter operators and um, the Russians were probably easily among my favourites. They're so colourful, so much character, they're often in trouble, but people generally like them. volga Airbridge and, and, and both the cargo logics will be sorely missed, not just the capacity because someone will always step in and, and fill that space, and I think most staff outside of Russia have now found jobs elsewhere. But there was something really iconic about Volga Nepa Group. And um, whatever you think of Alexei Zaykin, and he's got quite a checkered past, he spent decades building those airlines. And finally, after COVID, he, he had a good amount of cash behind him. And now he's had to resign. He was using the aircraft for the Russian government, but they made him. And on paper anyway, he's lost everything. But that man is pretty bouncy. And uh, I hope they all somehow manage to bounce back because the market's a lot less fun without them. But I'm really hoping that everybody bounces back. Obviously, Antonov has had a a terrible, terrible time. And we hear that they're rebuilding the AN-225, the Dream aircraft, which is great news. And I, I hope everyone bounces back. And the war in Ukraine had a more profound strategic impact
1: on air cargo market, hasn't it? particularly these restrictions on where you can fly and refuel, who you can do business with, sanctions. Can you explain how that's affected us during 2022 and where it leaves us now as we're looking ahead?
2: Well, I I think it's going to have repercussions for for years. Of course, there is the overflight issue. Lots of countries' aircraft can't overfly Russia, refueling elsewhere. It's added to length of routes and costs. But I think there's other issues. I think trading partners have, have changed quite significantly China and India are now w- way more heavily involved in trade with Russia than they were before, and you've got n- lots of new routes springing up to cater for those new trades. And there's a there's the loss of much of the large aircraft fleet, but again, plucky Antonov is still going on. But I think one of the things that's possibly overlooked is that um, the aviation in general is going to face rather a big bill, I think, for a long time. There's something like twelve to $15 billion worth of Western aircraft leased in uh, still in russia and that's a bill that the aviation insurers are going to have to pay for a long 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 time to come so i think it will have an effect on aviation in general thank you alex Uh, mr wackett may i
1: bring you in here and did i just see a pint of guinness in your hand or was that a terribly
0: unhealthy coke no it's a diet coke it's a diet coke at this time of the day mr king of course (laughs) that's yeah, be much better off with a pint of Guinness, Mike. I would. We were
1: talking a year ago, Mike, about shipping markets, and back then we had all sorts of new entrants using very old ships that really shouldn't have been competitive, mm-hmm. uh, but they were. Spot contract and charter rates were through the roof. Slot space was hard to find. Port congestion was right. No one could find containers. All of that has unravelled through 2022, hasn't it? How did
0: all of that happen? Just a little question for you to start with. Good question, of course. The ball run, I mean, the container ball run started in summer of 2020 from this massive e-commerce drive demand and effectively continued right the way through to this summer. Carriers collectively made mega profits, I think something like about 200 billion last year. And are still, despite the recent collapse of rates, are on for about 250 billion this year. These huge revenues obtainable per box and the scarcity of supply encouraged a host of new entrants into the line of market. And as you say, deploying small ships on long haul that were totally uneconomic to operate even 20 years ago. Because what we saw is that ironically, demand fell off a cliff just at the time of the traditional peak season in July and August. And with that demand, everybody was predicting this new normal to take a while to to come through, but it happened. And when this fall in orders, I mean, carriers started to blank or cancel sailings and the chronic halt and landside congestion that had, in a way, propped up the rates and eased around the world. ZNS's short-term rates from Asia to North Europe went from a market average higher of over $15,000 of 40 foot in January this year to just over $2,000 last week. And they're on a long run of weekly double-digit falls. And likewise, on the Trans-Pacific, Sonata's short-term rate component for Asia to the US West Coast is nosedive to a market average of around $1,500 per for 40 foot. So, you know, that's, that's where we are. Mike, we'll come back to what happens to some of those smaller ships and
1: those trades in twenty twenty three, a bit later, but as we're talking in almost mid-December, we're already seeing some of these smaller ships. Now, not substantial amounts of capacity, but we're already seeing a bit of scrapping of smaller vessels, aren't we?
0: Yes, I mean there's um I was some a batch of old, very old Wan Hire feeders. I looked at it, it was thirty years old, some of those ships that should have been for the Knackers Yard years ago, but obviously they kept them going because there was demand. Effectively, you had during this period unbelievable demand for anything that could float. So anything that was tied up, rotting away, and should have been for the scrapyard years ago was put into service. And shippers and major retailers were taking break bulk ships on charter, round-trip charters, just for the deck space on those ships at huge costs. So yeah, it's, it's unbelievable what, what was happening. And we saw this at, at TPM earlier in the year when carriers were non-existent more or less, I mean, just a few of them shippers were there just trying to protect their supply chains. What can we do? Anything that we can do to protect that supply chain, will do whatever it costs. So that was the, basically the, the mantra.
1: I think just on a side note there, dry bulk ship owners are also desperate for cargo as well. You throw in container lines and now looking for that cargo, there's going to be a bit of a squeeze yeah, on yeah. that multi-purpose break bulk fleet as well, isn't there?
0: Well, absolutely. They had a little bit of a holiday when they suddenly realised that their ships were becoming popular. Having seen previously their heavy lift shipments taken away from them by the liners, And of course, they suddenly got all that back, plus plus, which was the containers. But of course, that's gone into into reverse gear now. So given the age of some of these multi purpose vessels, that's not good news. And given the recession that we're all going into, that's also not good news for that sector. Thanks,
1: Mike. Gavin Van Moll. as Mike mentioned there, we've had two years of record profits for some of the big beasts of our industry, and not just the container lines, although they would definitely have the headline figures out there. We're now seeing stock market valuation slump across our industry, and we're going to come back to the opportunities that that presents for those sitting on a lot of cash later on. But during 2022, what
3: for you have been the big M&A deals? Well, I mean, the fatty boom batty of them all, without doubt, has been MSC's um, acquisition of Polaroid Africa Logistics. It's a bit of a the title. Polaroid Africa Logistics is basically... Bolarays ports and terminals on the African content deals valued at $6.3 billion, which we think is the largest ever logistics acquisition. I think it just pips DHL's um, purchase of Excel supply chain quite a few years ago now, or well, 20 odd years ago and DP world's acquisition of PNO ports. Yeah. So we think it's the biggest, that's the big one. And then, but actually funnily enough given that 6.3 expenditure was almost matched by Maersk, who over the course of the year bought pilots the last mile trucking operation in the US for 1.8 billion Lee and Fung, the Hong Kong based logistics operation 3.6 bill and Air freight freight forwarder Germany senator for 600 million so they've been very active as well the year also saw It was the first time that Hapag Lloyd properly got into the ports business. It signed a couple of development deals in the the Mediterranean region, as well as the one billion acquisition of Chile's S-A-A-M operations, which comprises about 10 terminals. Then there's our old friends at GXO Logistics, the big contract logistics operator, their 1.3 billion pound cash equivalent purchase of Clip Logistics, but, Funnily enough, one of the ones that's most excited us, right, rather than just the size of it, has been, and it's been quite under the radar, but it's been Abu Dhabi Ports, which has had an incredibly eventful year. They did a 25% initial public offering on the Abu Dhabi Exchange in February, which raised some money. It valued the company at about $4.3 billion, give or take. And then they went, then went on quite a big acquisition spree, And we think that that in terms of shipping assets, without doubt, AD ports, a port company has been the biggest acquirer of shipping assets this year. It's, it's, it's almost a billion dollars that they spent. I mean, $140 million to acquire 80% of Transmar, which is actually a very small operation, one port, couple of ships, and then 800 million on global feeder services in November which if you add on a couple of other route investments that they've made in create, setting up a new route between Abu Dhabi and Bangladesh, for example, basically they pumped over a billion dollars into the, into the shipping industry this year, which is very interesting, right? And often draws a lot of comparisons with their much more established neighbor, their big brother, the big brother bellwether DP world. And
1: Gav, just quickly, you mentioned there one of those big investments was by Maersk. Soren Skoo's retired after seven years running Maersk to be replaced as CEO by Vincent Clerc. What do you think of Soren's time? And actually, Mike, if you want to jump in here as well, how do you think Soren did?
3: And uh, does this mean a change of direction for Maersk? I'm going to leave judging Soren's performance to Mike, because I think Mike as an ex-shipping executive probably has a... More interesting perspective than I do, but as far as strategy goes, I, I think they'll double down personally. I think it was quite clear that the container integrator strategy was the brainchild of both Vincent Clark and Soren, and possibly Vincent was more of a motivator behind it and anyway they've got so much integration to do with these acquisitions
0: that it's difficult to see how they could um, change course Mike yeah, I, I would say, I mean, Soren, he took over from Niels Anderson, of course, different characters altogether. And Soren was a, a steady hand on Attila, really. I always felt not always comfortable talking to people, but really you could see the guy's commitment. And I, I always remember seeing when the lockdown started and you looked at his eyes and saw that real fear and, and concern. And, and you could see how committed he was to making that work and making sure capacity was reduced in order that there wasn't any any crazy ray cutting going on, etc., which worked very well indeed. And of course, he's just carried on with that steady steady feel about him, I think really. Then some different character, again, perhaps more open. I mean he's he's the he's the first non-danish CEO, I believe I'm right in saying, to to take that role. So Big shoes to fill, but I'm sure that Vincent is up to that. be interesting to see. I can't remember how Vincent got on with Soren Toft, who, of course, jumped ship to go to MSC. And I'm pretty sure they got on quite well. I think it's, it was quite camaraderie amongst that, that main board.
1: Yeah, so the, but there could be re- repercussions for the two MLI. Sorry, Gav.
3: Yeah, no, I was just going to say one other thing you, one, one should note about Soren uh, announcement is great timing. Right, he's just overseen massive profits. I mean, talk about going out on a high, <laughs> yeah. That's a very good point. And if
1: Soren or any of his friends at Maersk are listening to this and he feels like changing the habit of most of his career and having a chat, there's a big interview, Loadstar podcast, with your name on it. Now, to the, the fun part of this Loadstar podcast, which I will call uh, the, the winners and losers of the Loadstar podcast of
3: 2022. Gav, your biggest winners and and of course the biggest losers, please. Well, I think I've just talked about AD Ports, and I would definitely put them in the winner bracket. I think Hapag getting into the port business, I think that's a big tick for them. And also, I think you know three three gold stars over to CMA CGM as well for re- most recently scooping up Global Containers in Taming Terminals in New York. Which we think about three billion, but also. And we don't really know what, where this is going, but the rather paltry acquisition of Jeffco, which brings me on to a big loser, right? The big loser is Russian business out of all this, right? I mean, Jeffco, Russian Railways had 80% stake in it. Nah, that had to be sold off. We know it's gone to CMA, CGM. We think it's about 450, 500, whatever. It's a distressed sale of a highest order, Global Ports, which is the terminal operator in St. Petersburg, in which the Merce-Muller group had a 30% stake that had to be disposed of. There's the fiasco at Fesco going on at the moment. The Fesco founder has just been jailed. I mean, it's just a, it's a car, isn't it? A couple of other losers while we're on the subject of Merce, the failed bid by China International Marine Containers for Merce container industry which was mooted at about $1 billion, but that was kiboshed by competition regulators, particularly in Germany and the US. The ongoing, I don't know what word would it be, chaos, that just. but it's airways, Italian air, Alitalia. MSC was going to pay for it. Now it's pulled out. Is Lufthansa going to bid for it? Alex, is Lufthansa going to bid for it?
2: Well, they told me about a week ago that they weren't going to comment, so I'm not sure.
3: So hardly glowing resounding <laughs> enthusiasm there and then lastly uh, one interesting thing also i'd like to point readers out to is the sell-off of <clears throat> minority stakes in dp world's terminals to the canadian pension fund cdpq which is very interesting because if you look at the string of deals that they have put together over the course of almost six years now i mean it's basically looks like The Canadian Pension Fund is basically DP World Bank. So that's that would be the news for you there, Mike.
1: Alex, you mentioned Russia already, or Russian airlines and Ukrainian airlines, but I think COVID was a bit of a winner for air freight. But who was the the most winning in 2022 in the area that you covered? The most winningest, can I say that? Is that even (laughs) a word?
2: I think the most winningest was uh, probably the same as much the year before. So airlines who had sole capacity particularly in the medium and long term at the height of the market so as we all know forwarders took on vast amounts of capacity themselves for this year and with the spot rates coming down I think there's quite a few people regretting that move but those who leased aircraft I will be delighted I'm looking at Atlas in particular who I suspect has had a very very good year but um, Atlas is sort of Others in that in that ilk as well. Whether we'll now see some renegotiations, I don't know. But my guess is some of those leases will be pretty hard to wriggle out of.
1: And and Alex, when we talked about the that market, the air freight market has changed a lot in twenty two. When when did that rosy market begin to unwind, uh, ending in this most tardy
2: of peak seasons this year? Uh, well, I'm not even sure it's a tardy peak season. I think it's it's a non peak season. But if you look at the TAC index, it gives you a nice shape of what's been going on and rates started to fall in about this time last year, the end of December, and there was a bit of a rise in the spring, but April really was the onset of the decline that we have seen since, I would say. And your biggest losers in 2022, Alex? Well, I would say the number one loser was the environment, and that was probably true the year before, and it will be every year until fuel providers and airlines and airline customers Start to put sufficient investment into sustainable aviation fuel production and uh, other methods for lowering emissions. Other losers, shippers have had a really tough couple of years. First, it was no capacity, and then capacity was really expensive. and then all of a sudden the ships sorted themselves out and there was too much inventory and they had to discount everything. I'd feel quite sorry for them. They've had a tawdry, tawdry time. So I imagine it's starting to to ease up for them with rates going down. And, yeah, any company that books space at the highest of the market and now can't fill it, I feel sorry for them. And finally, Mr. Wackett, who
1: enjoyed 2022 most and who is propping up that losers column?
0: Well, well, it's uh, difficult to look any farther than the carriers, really, with those mega profits that they made. Effectively, results that they could never have dreamt of. And ship owners, of course, that have seen Ships that were destined for the scrap market bought up. For instance, what do we see? MSC hoovering up something like two hundred and fifty secondhand vessels at quite substantial premiums on their asset prices. So ship owners have really made a good killing because basically they have, in most cases, locked in operators into into two, three, four, or five year. Charter deals, so they're sitting comfortably on what they call their uh, backlog of revenue, and effectively, they just produce that revenue month after month after month, unless things go wrong, of course. Now I'd say ports have also benefited from the good volumes, and of course, from the landslide congestion, which has given them a windfall profits of detention, demurrage, etc., storage costs in their case. So that's been a big sort of part of their revenue stream, I think, really. Container leases who have been pumped, and manufacturers also have been pumping in more stock to mitigate all this capacity or inventory equipment, rather, that's been tied up. And obviously, shipyards for taking all those new orders that keeps them in in jobs for, for several years to come. On the other side of the equation, as Alex mentioned, the poor shippers have suffered very badly, effectively, which way do you turn? You think you have a contract, then you don't have a contract. You think you have a rate, then you don't have a rate. Then a company says, we won't deal with you because you're not big enough, etc. So what can you do? And of course, down the road, the retailers and the shippers, obviously, from inflation as well. So that's all filtered through. Retailers from inflation, consumers from inflation. So it's all gone right the way through. Somebody's had to pay for this, and we're all paying for it now, for those really mega high rates that... The carriers have have obtained other losers i would think really in the shipping world i mean but the barge operators the feeder operators they couldn't work any services i I was talking to feeder operators they couldn't get on the berth for four days you can't run services like that unfortunately they also weren't getting any decent increases from the line of customers so they struggled along the way so basically they're in my view the uh the winners and losers thank you mike I'll open up the floor now, I think. What do you
1: all think are the biggest takeaways for what I'm going to call uh, the COVID era for our industry? Is it tech uptake? Is it working practices? Is it how to make a lot of money in a pandemic? Is it the dangers of not having a resilient supply chain or relying on non-friends or countries with different values for key supplies? The mic is open. I
2: reckon it would be to expect the unexpected and then wait for the bullwhip effect. <laughs> that was really interesting, the, the bullwhip effect. And it's a sort of an economic theory, it felt like, which became writ large in practice. And I think we've hopefully learned something from that. I don't know if there's anything you can never do about it, actually, but very interesting to watch. And then I think relationships, I think the companies that maintained or strengthened relationships across the supply chain will fare better next year. Well, I'd, I'd like to think so anyway. What do you think, Gav?
3: Well, I mean, I, I totally agree with you on the bulwark effects. If anyone has ever played, it's, it's a game developed by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology (MIT) called the beer game. And it absolutely shows how that, and I'm sure lots of listeners will have come across it because it's almost like supply chain modeling 1.0, but it absolutely shows how that bulwark effect comes. And it also shows, and I think we've seen this year, how almost inevitable that bullwhip effect is. It's just a, a product of the length of supply chains and the time it takes for an order to get through to market, the lag between demand and supply. So in that respect, uh, certainly one of the things we hear a lot more about is, is nearshoring. It will have a, a plus and a minus for intercontinental supply chains, because rather than shipping finished products around, you ship raw goods over longer distances. we also rather suspect that we haven't seen the end of COVID and the effects will probably be playing themselves out for for several years to come. I think we'll be looking at China because that's obviously
1: one of those areas that hasn't really come out of the COVID era. uh, And that is absolutely
0: critical to global supply chains. Mr. Wackett, feel free to jump in. I'm pretty much in agreement there with my illustrious colleagues. What Gavin was just saying about near shore, and I think this over-reliance on China as the factory of the world, and if you think about it, with the lockdowns there that started all of this, and then the ups and the downs and some of the congestion because of those other lockdowns, and I think we're seeing that. One of the things I heard from somebody the other day was the fact that, why is the transatlantic doing so well? As against all the other trade lanes, the rates have gone down, but the transatlantic is still costing you $7,000, 8000 a box to move from North Europe to the U.S. East Coast. There's two reasons there. One, one is obviously the strength of the dollar, but the other is the fact that um, Americans are now sourcing a lot more of their, their stuff from Europe on the basis that it's more reliable, it's easier to get in, there's not that sort of very long time frame. So I think that is one thing. And I think as Alex mentioned there, this insufficient attention to relationships. I mean, relationships got to an all time low this last year and they have to be repaired because one can't live without the other. So they, see, shipping is a people business. So that has to be that involvement. We see that when we go to a multimodal or a TPM or whatever, that, that people want to talk, people want to do business. They don't necessarily want to be told, well, you have to send an email to somebody in Singapore or whenever to, to get that detail. They need to know. And also, when things go wrong, how do you sort that out? Certainly, when I was running the shipping line, I said to my guys, right, it's not what's gone wrong. It's how you communicate that information to the customer. Get to him on the Sunday before his commercial guys get to him so that he knows. And go, yes, I heard about, all about that. The ship was delayed because of high wind. I know all about that. So it's about that communication and that's been lacking. And whoever can bring that back has got it in in my estimation.
1: Which makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Mike. Let's have a look at 2023. Now, the logistics business or landscape, it looks obviously totally different compared to a year ago. Instead of, just for one example, instead of long lead times for parts and production delays due to excess demand, we've now got these big inventories to clear. We've got an excess of capacity everywhere, it seems. So, Mike, what are you going to be watching most carefully next year? Uh, just for starters, I'm being told that carriers have been unable to push through December general rate increases. What does that mean for this mini peak that we've had in the past before Chinese New Year?
0: Yeah, well, I'm not surprised that i unable to do that. What I'm hearing is mostly that hanging on to the expected reordering just prior to the Chinese New Year, which next year is early. It's 22nd of January starts. And the obvious thing that everybody's going to be looking at and wondering what on earth we're going to be doing with 2.3 million TU of new build capacity, that's about to hit the oceans next year. So what are carriers going to be doing with that capacity? I mean, we saw some evidence of this when the, uh, well, just two weeks ago, the 10th in the series of evergreen 24,000 TU ships, the ever top, I think it was came through the Suez Canal, 70%, um, you could see how, how desperate it looked, 70% full on a maiden voyage. I mean, nobody sells a ship on a maiden voyage looking like that. You make PR, you top it up with empties, do anything, but you don't have a maiden voyage that's two thirds full. It's the capacity issue that's going to be the thing. I'm just hearing a couple of things from people saying that a couple of lines are saying that they may be fully booked on certain vessels. Well, of course, they've reduced so much capacity. It's not a surprise, but that may be the green shoots that they're looking for. And people are optimistic, at least for the U.S., that these orders will start coming through again.
1: Are we back to seasonality, Mike? What happens in Q2, Q3?
0: If I knew that, I mean, I can't even tell what's going to happen in Q1, let alone Q2 and through. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> uh, and what is this new normal? It's obviously rates that are down to pre-pandemic. Or even less, but we have higher costs. We have higher operating costs. We have inflation. So something's got to give. The jury's out even on Q1, like let alone Q2 and Q3. The crystal ball's broken, but maybe there's a little bit that's still functioning.
1: Some of these newcomers that we've seen to the liner trades, we've mentioned it a little bit before. Are
0: we gonna see them deserting this particular ship? Mike, they've already gone. There's hardly anybody left because you cannot make any money out out of sending a Panamax ship from Asia to North Europe on $1,500 or $1,100. You could make it out of $20,000, of course, but you can't make any money. So that's what we're seeing is everybody's pulling out. C.U. lines. We saw that. We saw Elements move. their are two flagships from Asia, Europe to the transatlantic to try and get business on there. But all of these, these new entrants are already gone they're dead in the walls. Whack. what do you think about the prospects for
3: Lidl? You know, the German low price supermarket, I think that's how we describe them. They set up a shipping company called Tailwinds and we understood it was largely to carry it's Lidl's own traffic from Asia to Europe, sort of four ship operation. I just wondered if you thought that the dynamic affecting that was the same as with other new entrants
0: who are doing it on more on a common user commercial basis. Absolutely, Gav. It's the same economics. And I think I saw the other day, Costco, that's the retailer Costco, was writing off something like £93 million pounds of what they said was charter costs. So that's most probably in charter commitment costs that they had. And I think where all of the retailers did something similar to this in chartering these ships or getting some sort of involvements, but there's just the economics do not stack up and little are a discounter. They would not be wanting to pay one penny more than they have to. And they don't need to because they got every single carrier chasing them for, for their business. Thanks, Mike. Alex, as mentioned
1: previously, there wasn't much of a fourth quarter peak.
2: Are we looking at any improvement of Chinese New Year? I don't really think so. But if you look at the, uh, say, five year tax index, you can see that The major trade lanes rates are coming down pretty fast towards pre-COVID prices. And then maybe there'll be a slight uptick after Chinese New Year, but I don't think it's going to have any major impacts on that general decline. And I suspect we'll be back to the traditional peaks and troughs. You've got a lot of belly capacity coming back as passengers come back. Now, one slight thing is we ran a story today on the, um, there's an issue in the aerospace supply chain, which has delayed a lot of the cargo capacity coming in conversions and so forth maybe that'll help a little bit the airlines but i suspect the market will normalize that's barring of course major shocks like another war environmental disasters pandemics whatever those aside i suspect it might normalize a little bit
1: one of the things that i don't know if we call this normalizing but it's let's say it's not normalizing we'll just call it an emergence of a pretty disturbing trend (laughs) Uh, And it's not, uh, it's not conservative government sleaze in the UK or dysfunction even, or PPE scandals. It's a story you've been covering, Alex, and it's about corruption. What's going on?
2: Ah, oh, yes, this one. So it's, oh, it's fascinating, really. There's been a court case recently filed in which Polar Air Cargo, which is the, um, the, the love child of DHL Express and at Atlas Air, both listed companies, it has admitted that some forwarders... We're giving some managers at Polar Air illicit payments, personal payments to guarantee space. Now, when you talk to various forwarders, some say that this kind of backhander thing is endemic and it happens everywhere all the time. Most, though, say that it's more rare now and it's rather confined to some parts of Asia. But essentially, at least one forwarder, and it looks like a lot more, paid. Polar over a six or seven year period paid Polar managers, and it was discovered at the height of the COVID capacity fiasco. And then, when it was discovered, Polar appeared to ditch the forwarder, who is now suing it for that. It's it's very confusing, and no one's coming out of this looking pretty. Let me put it like that. And I, my personal view is, I I don't think there's any space for this in a modern air cargo industry. I think, it's a, I think it's a terrible thing. It's also a very sad story because one of the managers is said to have committed suicide. So obviously a very stressful, horrible period for all concerned. And I think it's important for all this to come out because I think this sort of behaviour has got no place in a modern logistics industry. And when people say, oh, but this has always been the case, I, I don't think that's good enough, my view.
1: Well, I'm, I'm sure the Loadstar.com co- will keep following this story and corruption in general. Gav, Big corrections in stock markets. What does this mean for M&A activity? Are you expecting lower prices to prompt more activity? Or will these cash piles be
3: sat on a, a bit longer, do you think? It's very difficult to say, Mike. So stock prices, yeah. September 2021 was peak. I mean, my, my colleague at Low Star Premium, Alessandro, termed it logistics on steroids. And that was peak freight for, pre, peak value uh 8pm. Um, M- M- and then from September, 2021 to August, 2022, it's been very painful. AP Moller held up a bit then fell. Expeditors and CH Robinson were also under pressure for different reasons. CH Robinson on speculation of M&A, none of which took place and Expeditors on its exposure to Asia. Asian operators also broadly struggling, such as SF Holding, Kerry Logistics, JD Logistics. Over in the US, FedEx restructuring, so its stock was hammered. Then it bounced back. UPS held up barely. DHL has been pretty solid in recent weeks. So overall, you've had some bounces of price, but it's been a very, very difficult 2022. Now, how this translates into 2023 and what sort of market activity we see is remains open to questioning. One of the big things that operators of all shapes and sizes, be they shipping lines or forwarders, what a lot of them have been doing have been they've been involved in very expensive share buyback programs. And these share buyback programs are committed to last for another couple of years. And they're they're big, you know. I can't remember offhand what mass it's but I think it's five, $5 billion dollar share. Buy back program, right? That's a lot of money to be using to buy your own stock. And of course, because you've committed to these programs, that could leave less money to deploy <laughs> elsewhere if the revenues are falling. And I think every indication is that the revenues will fall. So I think M&A is going to be, <clears throat> there's no standout ones. There's obviously a couple of prospects on the rise, as we know about, right? We all know that DB Schenker is about to undergo some sort of restructure. Now, whether that involves an IPO or sell-off, still hasn't been decided. The smart money would be on a sell-off of DB Schenker to private equity. And probably that's where, if there are m and deals to be had next year, and there might well be some distressed asset sales, never count that out. And if there are, then the acquirers might well be private equity, possibly fronted by an operator. And Gav, just briefly, the forwarding industry,
1: it's got a lot more competitive all of a sudden. What happened there? Well,
3: we've been reminded in recent weeks with the decline in ocean freight rates and the steepness of those declines very much reminded us of the days in the aftermath of the financial crisis, where, Mike Wackett, I'm sure you recall, there's a bitter, bitter, ruinous rate war in, in 2010 2011 that almost put some carriers out of business and one of the features of that from the freight forwarders perspective was that because rates were crashing so fast and demand was so low and there was so much spare capacity it was a time when a lot of the larger freight forwarders did big large block space deals with the big carriers for very very low rates they did on a speculative basis those bookings they use those bookings, say up to 500 tu a ship and bearing in mind at that time, the larger ships around for about 11,000 tu. you put that into the current context as well. You know, you'd have 500 tu that, that are top 10, 3PL, you would then use by a country basis to go basically and attack the smaller forwarders, customer lists and offer them far better rates. And I think as history often has a habit of repeating itself, I suspect But life in 2023 is going to be very difficult for the smaller freight forwarder, because not only they'll be be dealing with decreased demand from their own clients, but those clients themselves, they're going to be getting a lot of um, love and attention from the larger 3PL competitors. Thanks Gav. Obviously what happens in our industry is determined to a a huge degree
1: on what's going on in the the global economy. And we've got these forecasts for recession in Europe and the U S or although of course, U.S. consumer demand is, it seems to be holding up a lot better. And the debate there seems to be a little bit about how you actually define what a recession is. And of course, they've got less pressure on energy markets than Europe, for example. But most forecasts that I'm certainly seeing are suggesting lower exports out of Asia in the first half of the year. Definitely recessions in Europe. There are some signs that China might be easing lockdowns after protests. If we're looking for positives in, in 2023, peace in Ukraine, of course, would help, but looks unlikely. But there aren't loads of positive economic shoots out there right now. Uh, Gav, Alex, Mike, can you conjure up any reasons for a market or economic upturn in 2023? Or, or maybe you want to narrow this down a little bit and, and maybe can you think of any good opportunities in the current market or in this concurrent macroeconomic
3: environment? Well, I would have Bring it up again, they may laugh at me, but maybe someone could get Brexit to work. I am <laughs> no. laughing now. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> silent murths. No, I mean, look for it. there's no question that now that Boris has gone and Ms. Truss is, you know, there is definitely a thawing of relations between the UK and Europe, right? And they clearly there has to be some sort of agreement on the Northern Ireland. Sooner or later. I'm just looking for silver linings here, right? But for example, a thawing of relations, some kind of easing of the trading arrangement between the UK and Europe, anything to make life a little bit easier, you know, these things we've been writing about it in the Loadstar over the last year. A lot of great articles by Alex Whiteman interviewing smaller exporters in the UK and, and and Europe. If you could ease those trading relationships, there's a lot of economic activity that could return. So that's one,
0: Mike? really looking at sort of the global picture, it's really if the world or most of the world can come out of this recession relatively quickly. And if we can, then we know we've seen this before after the financial crisis, that there's a pent up demand that really gives everybody a boost and rates will go up and everybody will have a, a smile on their faces again. So it's really, it's a question of how deep and how long this recession is. But we do know the recessions do end as they do start. So at some stage, there will be that uptick, whether whether it's next year or not, who knows. And then really opportunities. I think carriers have a great opportunity now that they no longer don't have to do anything. Their ships get filled up, et cetera. They can no longer do much on the rates. And that's to get back to the best in class in terms of customer service, communications and really to provide proper line of services again. I think there's really just a market there that we've seen that people do prefer to do that, particularly when they have choice. They want to deal with people they can relate to, they can get answers to. They can deal, and we all know that problems happen, but it's how you deal with those. So yeah, great opportunities for carriers, really, if they're thinking it's going to be pretty bad next year, to up their game, rehire with all that money they've got washing around to... To rehire some customer service people, some great salesmen that got off fire before and get back to dealing with their customers. Can I just add add a point to Mike's thing
3: there on service levels? If I may, Mr. King. Go for it, Gav. Yeah, it's just next quarter there's going to be there, it will be a bit of a watershed as well, because the European Commission is due to publish its staff working document on the consortia you know the consortia block exemption regulation the continuing alliance thing and 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 the german competition authority has already come out and said we want this legislation to be rewritten i think mean, there's considerably more momentum behind some sort of adjustment to the cber whether it's just a simple reducing the market share threshold of the alliances which would in turn force a rejigging of the alliances, possibly reducing them in size so that what is currently three alliances becomes four alliances. WAC here has written a lot about MSE, possibly departing the 2M and going, going it as a standalone global operator. So there's a legislation aspect to that service level thing as well. And also this incumbent on given the difficulties that European citizens are going through at the moment, there's pressure on these regulators to, to
0: address competition concerns on behalf of the consumers. Mike, have you got one to, something to add there? Yeah, I mean, totally forgotten. And it's a very important thing really is that January the first means that the IMO are bringing in new tougher regulations for older tonnage, which really basically probably still needs to be tweaked quite an awful lot. But it's just another step in that right direction of the cleaner environment And that could have a number of benefits as well as to a scrapping of some of the dirty old ships, et cetera. And that could prove quite an opportunity in that respect. And obviously, certainly an opportunity for the environment. Anything in that direction is.
1: Uh, Yeah, anything from the IMO, yeah, tends to be watered down slightly from where where it could be in an ideal world. Alex, opportunities and risks 2023.
2: I think... There will always be people in this industry that find opportunities, whatever the weather, whatever the crisis. I think the the thing we've really learned is that we know nothing and can predict nothing apart from somebody will take advantage of it somewhere. The thing I'm interested in watching for next year is how the shipping lines use their cash. Will their airlines be successful? Will they manage to integrate successfully all their new purchases, especially in a, in a difficult market? I think that would be an interesting one to watch.
1: And finally, as we're wrapping up here, Mike and Gav, what are your biggest risks, upside or downside for 2023?
3: Well, risks, I mean, this very much depends on your viewpoint, but there is a whole stack of detention and demurrage cases piling up at the FMC. So it'll be very interesting to see where the FMC ch- judges on that because there's, on the one hand, there's a risk to carriers' pockets because they're going to be forking out in fines, but alternatively they might the FMC might judge things other ways and shippers hoping to receive some sort of recompense might be disappointed. The other risk, of course, ongoing and it's no to change, and it will continue to be a risk, is labour. There's just not enough labour all through. And one of those, of course, is congestion, right? So even though the congestion is cleared at ports, a lot of that congestion has moved to warehouses. Part of it's inventory build-up, but part of it's to do with with the lack of labour to deal with those things. And, of course, less demand for the products that are in those warehouses. So I would think where the goods go, that's also one to watch. Do you want to jump in, Mike?
0: Yeah, What as we've mentioned before, the uh, big risk of this massive amount of capacity to live in deliver next year 2.3 million to you. What's going to happen to that? The risk that there will be a long and deep recession. There's a risk that liners will just abandon routes that are uneconomic, leaving shippers without service at all, which is the way that carriers now look at these economics. And that some carriers <clears throat> that have taken on this vast number of chartered ships on a long-term basis will go bust and that domino effect will take out more companies Uh, for my part i'm keeping a
1: a close eye on what happens in china because it's so critical not just for export for that but also for that intra-asia demand that inter asia trade if there's if somehow they manage to ease lockdowns which are going to be very difficult with low vaccination rates and the spread of omicron then supply chains will become a lot more efficient but if it doesn't then that's a a drag on demand and, and global economic growth so we'll Keep an eye on that. But it's festive season. Uh, Last year when we finished up with our final Lodestar podcast, I think we chose Yaz's The Only Way Is Up as our song. What's your song, guys, for 2023? I think I'm having uh, the Beatles along and winding road myself.
2: Rolling Stones, I'm going down.
0: (laughs) Elton John, I'm still standing. (laughs) I I did think of The Roads of Hell by Chris Rare, but then I thought we'd just be... More optimistic. So I dug into the my Bob Dylan catalog and came up blowing in the wind. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So I'm sort of driving home for Christmas. (laughs) No, no, Christmas songs
1: are banned from this podcast. Uh, Alex Lennane, Mike Wackett, and Gavin Van Mall, thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast.
2: Thank you very much, Mike, and have a very Merry Christmas, one and all.
0: Cheers. And you, all the best. And I'll reiterate that to everyone.
1: Uh, Merry Christmas and all the best for 2023. Happy New Year. I'd like to thank TAC Index, the loadstar's air freight data provider and Zenitor, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And a big shout out to OEC's Jason Hay for his marvellous baritone introduction to this podcast. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon.